0: Hot House. Welcome to Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home with your hosts, Beth Kushnick and Caroline Daly. Welcome to a special episode of Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home. Don't adjust your dials. You're right. This is not Beth speaking to you, nor is it Caroline. This is producer Mike. I'm stepped out from behind the production screen to intro this special episode. What you are about to hear is an interview that Beth and I got to do with Benjamin Gillespie, Ben is the owner of and the artist behind the custom lighting design studio Ovid. He's an amazing artist based in Philadelphia. Take a listen to the interview. We talk about how he gets inspiration, how his un. Unusual and and non-traditional path to becoming a designer went and how he got to be where he is, uh, how he combines uh, all of his wood texture fixtures with cutting edge LED lighting, why that's important, how his business has changed with the revolution of LED lighting, how his business changed through the use of social media, especially during the pandemic. It's it's a great interview. Ben was really kind to give us so much time. I told him we would only need about 45 minutes. We ended up keeping him for almost an hour and 20. He was really, really great. Uh, so take a listen to the interview now. This is Beth and Mike, me, sitting down with Ben Gillespie. Caroline was sick, so I stepped in into her shoes for her. Shoes I could never hope to fill, but there you go. Uh, so take a listen now to our interview with Ben Gillespie. One note, my setting was weird on my microphone, and so my sound is in this interview is going to be off. And I apologize for that. Unfortunately, I did not catch it until the interview was all complete. And so there was nothing I could do with it at that point. But Ben and Beth sound great. They're the real stars here. Take a listen to the interview and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Joining us today is Benjamin Gillespie, the owner of and artist behind the custom lighting design studio, Ovid. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Ben we're so glad that you joined us. Uh, You didn't take the traditional path to lighting and furniture designer. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a
2: curator of custom lighting fixtures. Diving into this world, the design world, I I mean honestly I can think back to when I was a teenager deciding on what to to study in undergrad, um, you know approaching the college years. I've always had an interest in working with my hands, always had and interest in I I want to say design, but it was you know nothing formalized. But you know when you're 18, you have to make a decision. You don't. I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I was good at math and science, uh, in addition to being good at more of the design realm. And I was actually leaning towards architecture, but I got some you know advice from friends and family that had suggested engineering. I made a decision when I was 18 to to study engineering, and there's also kind of a I think of a disconnect with what a lot of people think engineering is and what it actually is. So anyway, I I studied engineering all the while. I I, I never really got rid of this nagging voice in the back of my head saying, you know, you'd be happier doing this, you know, doing this and that. Finished college, I graduated, I got a job, um, not actually being a practicing engineer. I just never stopped you know, working with, to create lighting, some furniture, but I just, I would always tinker. I would, I would, I would be even probably embarrassed to show some of the earlier iterations of what I did, but just creating lighting. I mean, I I was always drawn to lighting, but for years I would do this as a hobby. You know, what, what drew me to it is there wasn't one, I guess, event or one, one specific experience. It was kind of just something that was there originally that I, didn't listen to but it never went away and it just kind of the urge to embrace that and run with it you know at, at some point i just stopped ignoring that voice and just just went with it
1: that's great advice the idea of being an engineer is really evident in your work thank you it's so complicated But you make it look so simple. Every part of your background is uh, coming out in the current creations. What about your work as a
2: patent attorney? I appreciate you saying that about the work and tying it into the engineering background. I do think I try to approach, you know, aesthetically I have a certain approach, but also a functionality aspect. I try to -hmm. keep certain things in mind. I do think the engineering plays into that. But from the, the patent standpoint, you know, I was finishing undergrad, I knew I, I was really fortunate to study in a program in undergrad. It was a robust co-op experience. It was a work study experience. So I got to, I got to work in industry for six months at a time.
0: That's
2: awesome. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great in the sense that I learned I didn't want to do that. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know and, but that's, that's really valuable because I think, you know, a lot of young adults, you know, they, they graduate and they, they don't know what they want and i at least i had some idea of what i didn't want to do so i graduated undergrad uh, or i was finishing undergrad and i knew i didn't want to work you know some R- r&d lab which which you know for those that do it and like it that's great it just i just knew it wasn't for me but i just spent time getting an education in a certain area and i was like well let me is there something i can do with this background i forget exactly how i learned about it but you know i had started to learn a little bit about the intellectual property world and how patents can there's something you can do with a technical background and still use it without actually doing applied engineering. Um, so I, I did some research into it. I maybe went to a career fair. I decided this this would be maybe a good in-between. And I applied to a job at the patent office in... Uh, there, it's in Virginia, but the the Washington, D.C. area. Got the job, went down there. And it was great to live in Washington, D.C. for a couple years as a young person. And I kind of just a little bit of blinders on I, I I figured I was like all right this is the plan you know I'll do this I like that job enough and in, in retrospect there were, I think it was certain things about the job that I liked not necessarily the core of the job but you know I kind of just made a plan to go to law school and become a patent attorney and and didn't you know again before really embracing that nagging voice in the back of my head saying do something else um, <laughs> I just I, I made a decision to go with it and I saw it through and so I you know I there are things about being a patent attorney that were that are pretty intellectually, you know, satiating. I guess
1: it's great. You have the the left brain, right brain going on.
2: Yeah, it's it's. It can, I mean, it's it can be a, a struggle at times. I do think the design stuff comes to me a little bit easier, but it's it basically came from making a decision about a career and kind of just seeing what my options were and and just being like, wow, you know, what's that? I want to say the path of least resistance, you know, because it's a lot of work, but it kind of just seemed like the more tangible. You know, option at, at that moment, uh, and I and I liked you know from my experience at the PTO, I liked it enough that I, I figured it would be a good. Good starting point.
0: I'm an attorney, also. When I was about to go to law school, or deciding whether or not to go to law school, I had to decide whether I wanted to get a master's in music music education mm. and become a gigging musician, teacher by day, gigging musician at night, or go to law school. Mm-hmm. And I ended up choosing law school. And, and so I have a very kind of similar approach to. There's a nagging in your brain that maybe you shouldn't do this, but yeah. also the bills have to get paid and decisions totally. have to be made. Totally, uh, I, I was curious, and I was I was laughing. When I saw that you were a patent attorney and now you do what you do. I said, that makes so much sense. But I also had to think when you were practicing uh, and you were in the PTO, did designs ever come through that you would look at and think I could do that better?
2: That's a great question because you know, and I, and I don't want to speak too poorly on on you know my time as as an attorney. I mean, it's it's
0: I speak poorly about it all the time. <laughs> don't, don't
2: worry about it. I mean, I, I, there are aspects of being a patent attorney that are that are really interesting and, and working with someone who created something and and getting to you know find a way to create creatively protect it. You know, get get them coverage that is you know useful to them you know, it's, it gets really hyper-focused as a patent examiner. They want, the PTO wants you to be really specialized in one area, so that you can get really good at when a new application comes in, you almost don't even have to research anything. You can kind of just look at it and just know, unfortunately, in a way, my background was not, uh, my technical background wasn't anything related to the, the design world, which, which I wish it had been. Um, I was, I was working in the polymer resin art. Uh, so I, I saw a lot of adhesives, coatings, paints, uh, laminate stuff, not necessarily the sexiest, you know, thing to be working in, but it is a good question though, because it was more of when I actually became an attorney and then, then you're exposed to a much more diverse body of work. I would work with clients that had, you know, some of it was more, you know, big corporate clients, just kind of like more routine patent portfolios. But then every now and then you would get a smaller client that had a really interesting, Invention, their technology was pretty unique. It wasn't necessarily that, like I thought that I could do it. I just, it just kind of, it did get me though. I was just like, this is so interesting that they're building a business around their own, you know, intuitive, you know, approach, like their their own ingenuity. I mean, it's just that was absolutely an aspect to it.
1: We tell everybody, you know, you get inspiration from all different places. Totally.
0: You just have to be open to it for sure. Uh, Beth, whenever we have guests on, almost always when we have a guest on, it's usually because they're connected to you in some way, whether in through your work in television and film or through your, your private client work. When you mentioned Ben, I didn't know your relationship at all. So I let the listeners definitely want to know, I think. How do you know Ben? How did you get to know Ben?
1: It's a new working relationship and I'm thrilled to bits about it. Same here. I was on the search for a private client who had shown me some chandeliers that he was interested in? They seemed sort of like the current trend LED, circular. You see them everywhere from restaurants to gyms to pretty much every modern staged home. I'm Always after the different and un- unique and unusual, I really did a deep dive and I started looking everywhere. I hit up my friend Scott from City Knickerbocker.
0: Former guest uh, of the show, Scott Lieroff.
1: Everyone knows that lighting is, is one of my all-time favorite things and he told me about Ben for this particular client and this particular project I did such a deep dive you know I was in a situation where I was lucky enough to be able to hire Ben and my client is thrilled it's it's more than a lighting fixture it's a, you know a focal point of the apartment it's a work of art
2: thank you Beth appreciate
1: that um ben came from philly to new york to install the piece so we sort of all had this incredible experience i just felt like he could really speak to Everyone out there, both about film and television, you know, we'll, we'll get into the LED of it all. Um, you know, it's sculptural and like showpiece. This, when we talk about high, low and where you would spend the money and to get something so unique and literally custom made. I mean, the, the most incredible thing, it just all came together like we ordered a dining room table it's over the dining room table it hangs in my client's apartment and i knew that the finish on the dining room table was similar to the finish on the fixture but i really never could imagine that it was like ben made the table too (laughs) i mean it's
2: pretty exciting actually when we pulled the the protective wrap off the fixture and we saw actually how close the table was to the fixture. About I think we like...
1: We gasped.
2: <laughs> we gasped, yeah, exactly. I it, mean, you gotta love when a plan comes together like that. They, they, it's, it's kismet, almost. Yeah.
1: It is kismet and you know, it. It <laughs> what it does is it informs every decision after that. I always am trying to explain this even to set dressers. When things come together in the most organic way, whether you start to see shapes recreated, you know, you start to see like a a theme of circles or anything or or the same tone repeated like not that we didn't mean it but i always say we joke you know hey it looks like we meant it but <laughs> it, it just happens in that way when everything starts to sing you you see it you feel it we didn't have all the furniture in in our this apartment we're still working on it but you can see that the fixture informs so many other choices, even things that we're still acquiring. It's a standout. It's an incredible piece.
2: Beth, I, I really appreciate you saying all that. And then one other thing I'd like to add, your, your selection of the table. So the finish paired extremely well, but also just the shape of the table, too. It's an ovular right. table and the fixture. it just the front, I guess, to, to the listeners, like, those who haven't seen it, the fixture has a front curve and a rear curve that ends up actually mirroring. I mean, it, it, the it, the way that it talks to the table, front and the rear curve mm-hmm. of the oval, of the tabletop, it just it works so well.
1: We did a sort of unusual thing within the space because of the shape of the fixture. The table sort of sits on an angle,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: it wasn't even something that I thought we were gonna do when we bought the the table and the fixture. It just all came together, you know, having a creation and a, a special piece like this, and then and then having the artist there for the installation. It was um, like all part of the process, you know.
0: Ben, I was reading an interview you gave with Dwell, and you had this quote that I that I liked, but I want I want to dig into it a little bit more. You're talking about your design aesthetic, and you said, "quote It's dictated by what the material can do." Mm-hmm. Dig into that a little bit more. How does the functional aspect inform your design choices?
2: So the technique that I use, and I'm, I'm expanding actually, out, I'm not Expanding away from the technique I'm expanding in addition to the technique, but I use a lot of bent lamination just to give a quick background Bent lamination is a technique where um, you can curve wood by breaking it down into individual plies or layers like thin layers and there's there's a whole process that I do, but you can then by making them thin layers they're pliable and you can bend them and then you glue them back together in the bent shape once the glue dries that's how it retains its its curved shape you know when I approach you know a layout or or you know just kind of like a general idea i'm pushing the issue there i'm saying hey i want i want this shape to be this and the way that i consider it you know as far as the push back on the material well the, the wood's only going to be able to bend a certain way if you're just straight up carving a block of wood maybe you can approach it differently that i don't do a, a lot of that i mean there's limitations even within that but in terms of using bent lamination creating a form and getting a certain type of curvature out of it, no matter how hard you push it, you know, so I use steam bending um, and that really kind of makes the wood even more pliable and there's there's certain limitations with that. But in the end, there is going to be a limit on how you can twist the wood, how you can bend the wood, how you can pull things around. I've learned this actually over the years since I've been doing this, where, you know, I almost was too ambitious on some layouts initially. I was familiar with this technique even previously before I started, but you learn even more as you go that there's just a limit. So now. But it
1: looks limitless. I mean, the the look of it and what you've achieved makes everybody really look at the piece like a piece of sculpture and think, how the hell did he do
2: that? (laughs) I, I, I appreciate that. I think that's part of probably one of the funnest aspects is knowing what the limitations are and still kind of pushing it as far as you can t- to get it to be something something where that that's the reaction. I do think the material dictates some of the shape just just to give some credit to you know, I, I think there is a, a baseline that just knowing how a board of ash will bend in this grain direction. I have to give credit to the material to a certain extent, but then it's it's knowing how to manipulate that in the right way.
0: If we were to dig into your path, would we find a, a deep hole that's full of of, of splintered wood and, oh, yeah. and shattered boards that just <laughs> didn't agree with you on how they should bend and
2: fold? You, there, there could be like a third of my shop could be could be filled with stuff like that, or at least at least at least at one point it could have been. I, I'm heavy, heavily relying. On social media, at least I was previously to build the business up, and I was thinking about doing an entire post on just the failures. I mean, it's to, not to get too much into the nitty gritty, unless, unless everyone wants to hear it. But there's a certain type of grain. It's like a cathedral grain on the on the board that looks really good, in my opinion, but it bends terribly. So it's yeah. So if it's now you have the aesthetic, if you finish it, you know it's it'll have this beautiful like cascading grain. But I know that if I need to get really crazy with the bend, it's going to, the grain is essentially going to, just a single board can delaminate. That's happened to me a lot, actually, with like really complex bends. I'll be, I feel like I'm like 90% there. And then all of a sudden I hear like, and I'm like, oh, I, no. I, I start, yeah, I start screaming <laughs> in, in the shops start cursing. And then it, it'll snap and break. Um, and I'll have to re- redo the bend.
0: My son took a wood shop course last year, and his teacher did a whole section on salvage wood. Basically, failed wood projects that okay. they were then reclaiming and then making into like giving it new life based oh, cool. on the imperfections and the broken wood pieces of it. So That's I don't cool. know if you ever get bored for it, you can always open up like a secondhand shop of <laughs> totally. you know rec- reclaimed wood projects. Totally, so I, made, I made this one into a cat. It, it was supposed
2: go. to be a lamp,
1: but now it's a cat wood thing.
2: Even have it be a lamp as is, you know, that could be part of the uh, part of the story behind it. I love that.
1: So we know that your pieces are all designed by hand. What's the process? What? Do you, where do you start? Is it the size of the piece?
2: It's a great, oh man, I love this question because it's previously, I saw it as an advantage and also a, a disadvantage in a way. I, you know, having not gone to a formal Design. I I don't think you necessarily need higher education to to be good at something. I mean, that's, but I think higher education could be really helpful in refining a process, teaching kind of like people have figured this out over the course of X amount of years. Like, this is a good way to do it. I'm an extremely visual person. I can just think of ideas. I I rarely ever sketch things down, I'll just have the idea come to me and then I just start building it. Mm -hmm. Um, Previously, that's exclusively how I worked, and it's great for prototyping. With the expectation that your prototype is going to be extremely rough, which most prototypes are, I guess, but there's a lot of follow-up on, on troubleshooting. I think what I've learned you know, in the past five years since I've been doing this is the value in kind of slowing down a little bit. I'm very much like an ADHD person. Sometimes it can be hard for me to kind of like control that impulse, impulsivity. And But slowing down, not necessarily sketching it out because sometimes that can feel like it's getting in the way, but there is value to it. You can think through things that you probably don't need to prototype on. You can think think it through first before you actually get to building. I've been trying to deal with that and work through that because it's my gut instinct is just to dive in, just start cutting up material, just start working with it.
1: Our listeners would be interested in knowing in these situations, how much Parameter does a client or an interior designer give you? I, I know mm. you were working on a piece for another very large entryway, yep. mm-hmm. and just the size and scale of that piece uh it made it a whole kind of different project you oh. know even thinking about the installation of it and i know you you have worked on pieces that were you know in in movie or television show of course we're getting to the point where we have to accept led as as the new way of lighting but mm-hmm. you've you know again with being given parameters you've major fixture applicable for film and television. So, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're designing a piece for a client, how does that relationship work? Do you, you know, start off with these parameters and then go from there?
2: You know, I've learned communication is extremely important. It's having the meeting of the minds, making sure that everyone understands what's going to be what I need to build. The person understands what they're receiving. And this is part of like the the paper to pencil thing that I've had to fight to kind of really embrace in a, in a way, not anymore. I mean, I, I totally see the value of it now, but typically when I work with, you know, a big custom project, like the one I'm working on now, the conversation was, you know, this is the size of the room. We're thinking the volume of the piece should be, this one is 10 foot by 10 foot by two, two feet. You know, I sit down, that's the first thing that I'll need is that volume. And then I think about what what could work in that space. And then the limitations that I have are, you know, you can only have so much LED run, um, before it starts to be, you know, more than it's not even a safety issue. I mean it's partly a safety issue, but like it, it's just too much LED. The, it, the the hardware will fail or there's a thing called voltage drop. There'd be too much voltage drop. You know, I set parameters for myself, but knowing what their target size is, and then from there I can play around with with layouts that aesthetically would look good, keeping in mind the technical limitations that I'm aware of, but it all starts with the target size of the space that's going into a big, I don't want to say a hurdle, but I mean, something that I've had to, you know, address in this like overall endeavor is coming up with standard sizes. Hey, this, this is dining room tables are typically this size. So let's make a fixture. Let's make a fixture. That's, that's kind of a set size to this, then balancing it with the truly custom stuff. That's just you know the the again this fixture that i'm working on now is is uh it's it's a really it's a beautiful space you know big open space and it's truly just a custom fixture i'll never build this one in particular again you know most likely understanding what's relevant to each of those types of projects
1: it's amazing because when you see the work it's so in a way i mean it's so strong but it's so delicate it's mm. it's like really a myriad of opposites, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, strong and yet it's so feminine and delicate. I think that's what makes them each one of them. So pleasing to the eye, you know, when, when you're talking about a 10 foot by 10 foot piece, I mean, it almost just floats in the space and Mm -hmm. doesn't take the space. And yet it's something so interesting to look at. It's the type of fixture. They're just so visually pleasing.
2: I wish I could articulate like a more cogent, you know, rationale behind, you know, what drives certain types of layouts. But I mean, the biggest thing that I go for is um, when I, when I come up with something, I'm just like, does this feel balanced? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the pieces aren't ever really symmetrical. I mean, there's i guess aspects of symmetry to them but they're usually asymmetrical overall but like just visually does it feel balanced does it are you comfortable looking at this and then from there
1: you are yeah (laughs) you can't stop looking at it yeah and
2: then because on the one end are you balanced and on the other end it's just like okay well then how can we push this to be kind of this organic looking thing otherwise it's you know potentially not a balanced not physically balanced but aesthetically balanced structure
0: it's so personal these projects to these clients and and each installation when I was thinking about what you do and going over some of the pieces it struck me would your design process would your whole process have to be different if you were creating a collection for a wide audience to consume versus a small group or or a single client? Do, do you feel like you have to change or simplify or I don't want to say dumb down, but or uh, switch to a more mass production kind of mindset? Or do you think you can scale that same level of intricacy, but on a wider collection base?
2: That I love that question. I'm actually kind of dealing with that right now. Um, so the, the pieces that, you know, the piece that Beth and I worked on, this custom piece that I'm working on now, this 10 foot by 10 foot one, I think scaling something like that would be pretty difficult just just in terms of the work that goes into the piece it's it's i don't even know how you would necessarily i don't like the word automate but i mean like i don't i don't know how you would increase the efficiency of it so that that's from a production standpoint and then you know in terms of the piece working the average consumer w- would they also appreciate that you know it you know because these pieces can be somewhat specialized you know would 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 the average person also enjoy this this fi- fixture i mean i would i would hope that they would but one of the biggest things that I do consider a lot when designing these pieces and who the target audience is, there is a, and again, this is like, I feel like this isn't like the sexiest thing to consider, but it, it always creeps in, in some, maybe like the engineer me thinking about this, but a functionality standpoint, you know, some of the pieces, when they teeter the line of sculpture, sometimes it does sacrifice a bit of, you know, people think of a, a chandelier, they're like when it comes to LED a lot of people can't consider I'll be like, Hey, this is seven thousand lumens. They're like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> you know, and it's even for me, I'm just like I have I have like a I have a calculator that I'll use. I'm like, oh that's about you know four or sixty watt bulbs or something. Um, oh that
0: when I go to the when I go to a store and I buy bulbs and it, and it has lumens, I said, Where's the wattage? Is it yeah? Oh, is it, exactly is, is this a hundred watts? That's what I understand.
2: Exactly. And to take that further, what makes it so difficult with LED and this kind of gets at, at your question is that LED can have a raw lumen output but the or what's really controlling about LED is unlike a standard incandescent bulb that glows 360 just around the room LED is directional even if it says it's putting out a certain amount of lumen and they equate it to you know a 60 watt bulb or something i have found it's still not the same
1: and the, the color temperature is the not color the color temperature
2: same. yeah so it's it's not an apples to apples thing so so therefore you do have to be way more mindful in how it's being used and it does, it, it impacts how you use layouts. I mean, I have certain fixtures I've gotten interest on that I have to have discussions with the interior designers saying, hey, I just want you to know, this is how it's going to impact, you know, don't expect it to have this functionality in, in a certain extent, you know, to a certain extent. And it's it's the conversation then shifts. We probably shift to a different fixture.
1: And we all know it's my reason for hoarding incandescent bulbs in my dishwasher.
2: Um, <laughs> well, but... well Beth, I wanted
0: to ask you though, because based on that that non-standardization potentially of the LED lights, how I know I know you don't like to necessarily use LED lights versus incandescent in your work, but sometimes you have to. How do you as a receiver of this kind of work, how do you make that adjustment, or can you make the adjustment if, if you're receiving it for a private client and maybe the light is not hitting the way you would think it would in a room or if you're on a set more germane to our show yeah. uh, how how do you account for that if you were looking for a let's say a, a forty watt you know mm-hmm. a, 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 like very low light or, or something more bright, how do you make that adjustment on your end?
1: Well, for film and television, still, we're in a situation where LED is a no-no. Thank God. Well, you know, (laughs) there there really has been great strides made. And, you know, the reason why it's a no-no is because it vibrates on, on camera oh okay the problem now is that with the supply chain issue with things changing and with a lot of my job happening by shopping online you can't believe i mean just finding a simple fixture with an incand- that takes an incandescent bulb of any kind whether it's a lamp for a baby's room certainly anything like in an office, there all the fixtures are LED. Uh-huh. You know, I've always worked closely with the DP, with a gaffer, director of photography, and with a gaffer. And as a set decorator, I work with a rigging gaffer um, because I'm mm. usually advancing the company. And the rigging gaffer is sort of there for me to pre-light and um, get the the fixtures, the practical fixtures on set lit, you know, where I can, we uh, rewire things, you know, yeah. where I can take out the LED and or get the LED dimmable then we can use it on set. But I'd say in the last few years, the bulk of my work thinking about lighting, which is a paramount to me, uh, you know, in dressing a set, I really have to consider what we can do. Like Ben designed a fixture that was used on a set and their electricians, you know, rigged it with the a proper dimmer and made it made it work, you know. For private clients, this whole concept of lumens uh, and what the numbers are, honestly, I'm still learning. I'm you know that I'd say is really um an area where I still have work to do, and uh, I'm working on it currently. I just went to buy sconces that are for the same client and it's so hard to do that translation and to you know like i have always known what a fixture would look like but i don't really know now with the led so mm-hmm. it's a it's a process it's a new and, world
2: and to add on to that they have led bulbs that are kind of similar to the ink- yep. just just the, and then there's led strip which is that's primarily what i use and even with that like each one can have a lumen rating that can be the same, but even they're being used differently because LED strip is very directional. The lumen rating is not what controls anymore. There's it's I, very I love special. it
1: because it can allow an artist like Ben to create what he creates. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, in the real world. I wish that we were all having incandescent bulbs. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the wrong color temperature, you know, you could do your whole house (laughs) renovated or a new house. And, you know, you walk into these places with tall ceilings and vaulted ceilings and beautiful spaces. All the lights in the ceiling are these Odd temperature uh, LED light bulbs, that's always the first thing I recommend changing. If you're not going to change them to incandescent bulbs because you can't, then at least they're developing so many new warmer temperature LED lights.
0: What drew you to deal with LED lighting versus using incandescent in your fixtures? And how would you say, because you've probably been working in this industry now as LED really exploded, would you say it changed the industry of lighting? And if so, what do you see as the pros and cons versus the more traditional incandescent?
2: I've always you know even in the hobby days played with both incandescent and led but it was way more drawn to led just in terms of what you could do with it so you know in addition to lighting I've always been fascinated with woodworking so just from a safety standpoint being able to embed led into wood so intimately which was like kind of a driving force on like the design aesthetic of what I'm going for to best point like I, I couldn't do that with incandescent because it's a safety concern right. um, and it's the heat, exactly. You know, LEDs get warm, but they'll never approach you know an unsafe temperature. And uh, at least, at least in that application, that was a big driving force, knowing that I could safely do it. But also, strip lighting in particular, I've always been drawn to these. You know, creating a curve form, um, and then having you know an LED follow that curve. So that that was kind of what immediately drew me into it. And then. To your point just now, I think there was a little bit of synergy going on that the timing was really good for me because I had been doing this and then suddenly LED started to get really good. Maybe not from a film standpoint, but for like residential applications, they started to get a lot better than they were in, in the 2000s. Suddenly they're starting to be cheaper. The CRI is higher.
1: Well, you can tell that it's gotten good because it's literally taken over the
2: market. To- totally. And it's And it's... And you still have to get the right kind. I mean, to back to your point, you know, if you get a a bad kind, it can look horrendous. Um, But yeah, you could
0: go into Marshalls, though, and buy 15 changing color LED strip lighting for your kid's room for 10 bucks. You know, it's really become ever present
2: everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one other driving force I see with the LED is in how it changes how lighting is being designed and being used in the home, at least. You can design fixtures differently now because you can kind of anticipate the LED I use is, is, it has a lifetime warranty. It has a minimum rating of, uh, I think it's 50,000 hours. So, you know, if, let's say you're using that four hours a day. that's That's, you know, decades worth of use. That changes now how you can consider something versus if you have an incandescent driven fixture where you know you're going to have to, uh, maintenance it much more frequently you still have to be able to maintenance the fixtures i design all my fixtures to be maintenance they come apart and you can pull the led out if needed but i do think it changes how you can design a space because now you're more limited in some some areas and beth like touched on that and color temperature and you know maybe the flickering which does happen but you also are opened up in the sense that you you kind of you can use this with you know and just set it and then forget it for potentially 10-15 years
1: I think it's also changed, it's fostered a whole new design element. Mm -hmm. Really, before this, without LED, certain fixtures weren't, Made as Ben said, I totally agree with that. Right, so it's now you see this like plethora of contemporary lighting that is everything from standing lamps to sconces to hanging fixtures that are really driving spaces, all different kind of spaces, like. Even Modern Farmhouse, you know, has all these modern lighting fixtures. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, from a design element, I think it's reaching a much wider audience because the the lighting in your home that you choose as design element has so many more possibilities.
2: Mm-hmm. From a fixture standpoint, you know, along those lines ceramic artists probably always could use it because ceramic can deal with heat pretty well. But like you can have potentially paper artists or, uh, you know, just different material mediums now can be opened up to lighting in a way that couldn't happen with incandescent because again, LEDs just kind of enables that. So we're going to have to catch up in the film business. Yeah. As you, as you mentioned, I did work on that one project. They, I think I created the fixture and then they had someone in-house. They, they swapped it with a certain type of, I wasn't familiar with this, but a certain type of LED that does not flicker on. Right. Yeah. It's a
1: certain dimmer.
2: Exactly. Uh, Yeah. uh, That, that must've been it.
0: Technology will always find the way, but but I want to I want to go to the other part of your fixtures, the, the wood aspect. Reading up on Ovid and your work, I saw that you use all locally sourced materials. Mm-hmm. It, the fact that it stood out to me made me uh, wonder: is that important to you? If so, why is
2: that important to you? Probably the most important aspect is using the best material. Um, so if if you know if I was in a location and so. I do a lot of steam bending, and uh, for that, uh, I use ash as my primary wood source, which is actually pretty tragic. Ash is currently dying off in North America. There's a beetle infestation that's killing off all the ash, so they they say ash is going to be gone in in five to ten years, but potentially even sooner. So it's,
0: I was going to make a Ringo Paul John joke, but, I'm, <laughs> but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to. I'm,
2: I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna restrain myself from doing I've, that. I, I feel free. I, you know, I'm, I'm ha- I would I would be happy to hear the joke. Um, you always blaming us for your ash. Friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. The either ash or oak, uh, and there's there's fortunately there's enough oak to, to supplement, but ash takes stain extremely well. Uh, red oak is red, and white oak is just a different kind of different beast. But if I was located uh, located in a place where ash and red oak were not readily accessible. I wouldn't take a local resource. I would potentially have the best material shipped to me. I'm I kind of got the best of both worlds. It's I do value being able to support uh, local material resources while also getting Pennsylvania is a really good location for sourcing ash and oak. Actually, the best of both for me, but I, I do think it's it's a little bit of a balance.
0: Well, that kind of leads me to my next question, though, and this again just going towards your what inspires you, whether you're maybe consciously or subconsciously, is being, being in Philadelphia and, and having your studio there and working there. Does that influence your work in any way, shape or form? Because there's definitely a feel to your pieces. If you look at enough of them there, you know, Scandinavian maybe comes to mind or, or mm-hmm. you know, some, something very modern feeling. But mm-hmm. Philadelphia is such a, a, a wide swath of culture and people and, and, mm-hmm. and aesthetic in and of itself. I'm curious if you've ever thought about whether or not that has seeped into your work a bit.
2: I mean, not to say that it hasn't, maybe in a subconscious manner. I don't know if I consciously can think of something that it has. I mean, I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. I, I lived here most of my life. I've I worked in D.C. for a couple of years. But I mean, I'm sure being a Philadelphian has influenced. It, it had to have influenced somehow, but... I probably can't articulate, if it has, uh, how it influenced me. Well, it's not
0: a test, but if you ever come back, we'd like an answer, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure. I'll, I'll, really I'll think about it. I'll,
2: I'll give that some thought. Um, sitting on,
0: like, the uh, the rocky steps, you know, <laughs> bending your wood. Or whatever, exactly, you know. yeah.
1: Carrying a fixture above his head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how long, uh, Ben, does it generally take you to complete a piece? Like, not the 10 foot by 10 footer, but, mm-hmm. you
2: know, an average size piece it's been a while since I've been able to just, you know, if you're, and I feel really fortunate to be able to answer this way. Uh, it's been a while since I've done just one order at a time. Um, but if, if I was going full blast on something, just totally focused on it a couple weeks, at least um, it is a really incremental process. It's a slow buildup, not to say that it couldn't be streamlined a little bit, but I, I, just a lot of care goes into each stage. So it's, it's, it's at, it's at least a couple weeks, usually at least a month. And that's, but that's, that's, you know some of the the faster work that i would have done i mean typical lead times i i give around i mean at least two months um i forget what we what we ultimately did i mean it was for us it was it was at least it was over two months um, yeah
1: it might not be working on a movie schedule or a tv schedule yeah. but when it's a showpiece you've got to be patient
2: yeah yeah for sure
0: and also i mean people should understand you're, you're not walking into a factory with a thousand people it's you Yeah. I mean, it's you. So there, there's an expectation there too, that
2: it's
0: it's part of, it's part of what you're, you're getting with the product.
2: For sure. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I honestly, it has been a little bit frustrating at times to get interest from, you know, potential, you know, partners to work with. And I haven't been able to give them a lead time that would work for their, their project. Um, And, you know, no harm no foul or no, no bad, bad blood or anything. It's just like, I, I need something faster. I am actually working to, to, to create a secondary line I've, I've invested in like different tooling that'll allow me to kind of generate work faster. It's going to be a different process though. It's not going to be this bent form. It's still going to have a lot of curved housing to it, but it's just a different way of making it. That
1: Yeah. You got to knock off yourself.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just got, you know, constantly innovate, you know, and if part of that is innovate in, in the, the method of production, even if it requires something completely different, um, at least something to explore.
1: So you said earlier uh, that social media plays a big role in your business. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you got
2: started and how the company came to be. I enjoyed telling this aspect. This is uh, kind of another, you know, we were talking about the, the the good timing of to get into this when LED was kind of having, you know, an explosion in quality and availability. I also think I got started and decided to make a social media presence at the right time. I didn't, you know, Instagram came around, I think like 2010, you know, this, this didn't become a formalized endeavor until around 2017, 2018, I think. But I had made an Instagram account for lamps. um, And I was just, you know, I'd post once every like six months or something. Being in Philadelphia, not being in New York, if you're trying to do this level of design, I think, you know, being in New York is really advantageous. But that's changing a little bit, you know, because, you you know, through the power of the internet and social media, if you put a dedicated effort to creating a presence and showing the work off as best as best that you can. I think one of the reasons I'm speaking with you both today is because of I took social media really seriously. I found it rewarding. I mean, I I would finish a piece. I would photograph it. I, I also taught myself how to use a camera. I took presentation really seriously, finding ways to present the work and put it on social media was was kind of the catalyst that set all this off. Now, now I'm doing way more stuff in person. I do trade shows, you know, I work in galleries. It did start with just having an outlet. In no way was it like roadblocked or anything. I just had an outlet and I started to just kind of grow an audience.
1: Well, the pieces, I think, also lend themselves to being photographed. I mean, they're obviously more spectacular in person, but what we were talking about being so balanced and visually pleasing you see in a photograph. So, yeah,
2: thank you. I appreciate
0: that. There's also a delicious little irony though, too, the, when, when you have to teach yourself, you know, take your camera, teach yourself how to photograph your pieces to put them on social media, (laughs) dealing with lighting, of those pieces <laughs> you know becomes its own kind of thing which you know is an interesting like little mind down the rabbit hole puzzle of how do you light the pieces that are lighting fixtures themselves
2: i have the most the utmost respect for for all of that i mean I, that was something that i was i was quickly humbled on finding a way to to properly showcase the piece in a photograph and you know i i i've since i have a seamless background i've i bought kind of low level but photography lighting and it's it is it's difficult especially with with these forms that have continuous curves shadowing would have been that shadowing getting potentially like a hot spot of a glare mm-hmm. it's all these things that you need to address and i i'm still pretty slow compared probably compared to the professionals but you know it's it can be a day of just taking 500 photographs for for one or two
1: but you know in a way the piece really informs the photograph because even when i shot it just in my client's apartment there's one angle where it really you know looks outrageous it looks so great and you totally. can see it so they they speak to you and, and
2: yeah.
1: tell you come over here and yeah and shoot, shoot my good side
2: over totally. here totally which which by the way another reason i was so happy with the Position of the table that was selected because in pairing the the lamp above the table, I think I feel like we it presented one of its better sides. It, it's, it was a high traffic position, so you're always going to yeah, see that side exactly.
1: Like you walk into the room and there it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it's thrilling.
0: Our listeners love practical tips, and so I feel like it would be irresponsible of us having a lighting expert like yourself been on the show if we didn't ask you. What are the best tips for someone that's going out to buy lighting fixtures from their homes, whether it's overhead lighting or, or lamps? What what should they be considering about when you're when you're meeting a client for the first time and, and at that very beginning of the process? Mm-hmm. What are the concerns that they should be thinking about? The things they should take into consideration from mm. from your point of view.
2: That's a great question. Uh, I think the one of the first questions I have is how much heavy lifting are you expecting this fixture to do? So I offer more sculptural pieces. If they expect that the, the chandeliers to do heavy lifting, I'll push them more in the direction of like the woven, what, what Beth and I worked on as compared to some of the more just purely artistic pieces, which is that can go into an environment that has a lot of secondary lighting. Um, maybe they have, you know, soffit lighting or cans in the ceiling. Uh, so that's, that's one of the first things is, is how essentially how bright do you expect this thing to be? it's really about
1: place and you know we tell everybody to consider how much you know you're depending on that fixture for practicality Mm -hmm. and also where it's going to be if it's a dining room fixture you should think about the shape and the dimensions of your table we added actually some really plain sconces in this dining area that we're doing because the actual getting some more light was Mm -hmm. an issue. So I think the most important thing to do is to think about where the fixture is going to hang. I'm always a, a fan of not looking into a bare bulb, you know, Mm -hmm, um, but, but considering, you know, looking up and, and what are you looking into, Mm -hmm. um, and the direction of the light, you know, Mm -hmm. um, is it mood lighting? Is it practical lighting? Uh, you know, are you doing your homework underneath it? Mm -hmm. Um, does it need to be directional? You know, it comes up a lot, when someone has a sectional sofa or you know it needs like specific task lighting to you know really hit where they do things like read. there are some really interesting uh new modern again standing lamps that you know have LED in them LED strips and you know can come up and over a sofa. Or be at the end of a sectional sofa and do a, a lot of good shining light on, on what you need. I, I think it's really to consider putting lighting in air. We always do on a set, put lights, you know, in bookshelves and in the kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. a shaded lamp, a little lamp on the countertop, just keep adding fixtures
2: yeah i mean i one of the i understand you know budget constraints for people and and you know just there's there's so many cons- considerations to be had but one of the things that i personally prefer is the more you can have a balanced glow it's it's just the room is just going to feel so much better i mean that, that's probably part of that's personal preference but i do think to the extent that if you have one fixture doing all the heavy lifting it's just it's great. You it can light the space, but you're just kind of getting punched in the face.
1: That's such a good way of looking at it. You know, layer layer the light, layer the shades, use it as a decorating tool. I think some of my greatest work on on sets is balancing that light and those shades. And, you know, I'm I'm so conscious that I never want a lampshade to be growing out of an actor's head. Mm-hmm. So um, different types of, of fixtures.
0: Beth, Beth, I wanted to ask you, though, because when, when I was going through Ovid's website and I was looking at them, I, I was looking at them so often as as art as mm-hmm. much as a functional fixture so a- as an interior designer or even if you were on set is there a balance of for you to place a piece like like something Ben will uh, will have will have created a fixture like that where you're using it for function But there's also an aspect of balancing of it itself being a showpiece, right? So much lighting is functionalized. You don't want to see it. You just want the utility of it. But then there are things you don't want to hide. Something that like Ben has done. You want to showcase a bit too.
1: To have anything fight with it. The rest of the lighting fixtures in this private client interior only. Complement the fixture because they're almost non-fixtures i would never take away from this kind of creation in this particular case the finish is black any other fixture is black it it, it just has it's just about glow i wouldn't want to take away from It by looking at a fixture and saying, oh, that's that's a cool fixture, because the one and only great showpiece is the dining room chandelier. I would say, you know, if you end up having a showpiece in your home that's like that, support it with fixtures that just glow and Mm -hmm. don't really read as anything in particular.
2: And it's interesting, too, that supplementary fixtures, the secondary fixtures, they don't even necessarily have to be that powerful. It like a little goes a long way in balancing mm-hmm. that out just kind of to fill out the space. It just the cumulative effect is is it's fantastic.
0: Ben, I think I know the answer, but I, we're talking about you a little bit, almost like you're not even here. So we're talking about your work and the things you make. So I want to take it to you. Do you think that you make functional light first?
2: And art second, or do you make artistic pieces that give off light? It really depends. I mean, in terms of I, I, there, I don't think there's one one answer to that. It, it, it's really what the goal is. So I, I, have a piece in a gallery right now, um, in New York, and the, this, this was designed specifically for the gallery. And one of the conversations I had with the gallery owner was, you know, can I go nuts? Can, can I make this? Do can I throw functionality at the window? You know, ultimately, this is a lighting sculpture. This is a lighting piece that does light the the space. But we decided to, to try this. That completely opened up the door to trying this new approach. And you know, there's there's certain refinements that need to be, be done, but I think you can go that route of just saying, I'm not gonna worry about functionality. And I, I have other pieces that that are like that as well. Does that excite you in a way that maybe just making a, a lamp doesn't? It's so exciting because it's it's I guess I guess I'm goal oriented in a way. Like I'm achieving a different type of goal, so the whole process is even though there's a lot of overlap, it feels different. When you're going a more Task route. It is you, the the bumper rails on the bowling lane are there. You know you have to stay in the lane. You you can't divert from that too much because then you, suddenly it's it's no longer a functionality. It has gone outside the the boundary of being a functional lamp. That if it's marketed as a functional lamp and then it doesn't perform that way, you're going to run into issues. So I've been told from peers and and just you know friends whatever that I'm a little bit too strict on myself about that, but. I think it's important. I think if people are going to invest in a piece like this, the expectation needs to be met. There, there needs to be a meeting of the mind because, you know, regardless, if you want something more in the art realm, you know, as long as everyone's on the same page, that's great. That's the engineer in you, and not so much. Exactly, I was going to say the yeah. same thing.
1: It's the right brain, left brain. Yeah,
2: that that, and even maybe some of the lawyer in me. It's just like yes. it's like, Spock if you're if yeah, you're a yeah. product, <laughs> human and evolved. Yeah, to together, yeah. <laughs> but it's but it's it's really important to me because I I you know I don't I'm very thankful for every opportunity to make a land for someone that I get, and I just I think communication is so important, and just I think it
1: also informs the way that you deal with the. The designer and the client and i think that's what raises it to a a whole other level i know it's unusual sometimes to have the creator you know there for the installation but the way in which you approach it really speaks volumes and it just is a a, you know it's it's the perfect combination of the artist and the engineer
2: i really appreciate that and and Part of this is, you know, some war stories. I mean, I've I've also learned over the years the importance of this. I mean, early, early on, there there was some not proper communication, and I had to deal with some situations where some parties weren't that happy, and I, I had mm-hmm. a, you know, had to deal with that. And I'm I'm in the end, I guess I'm thankful for the learning experience, but I just I just never want that to happen again. Ovid, does it have a translation? What does that word mean to you? I was I was happy to
0: have the pronunciation on your website.
2: It's funny I didn't want to use my name I wanted a, a pseudonym this is the IP attorney in me I was like well of course I need something that would I could get a federal registration on the trademark for so I I spent about a month playing with words seeing what ex- playing with letters to create essentially just a fake word. And I did a bunch of trademark searches. There was things that were a little too similar for the classes that I want. I eventually decided on, you know, this and it was free and clear. And I just, I just like these letters, I guess. And I, I played with you know, different arrangements and this, um, it's funny because I, I, I've I had people say, you know, your designs, you know, they, they seem Scandinavian, you know, they, they evoke that feel. I was at a design show once and this woman from Norway came up to me and she was telling me how much she liked the name of the studio and how it like reminded her of like you know, some some word from back home. But um It feels like <laughs> it. I went looking on translator.com, I was like, this is gonna mean
0: like bent, no, it's... bent wood in, 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 <laughs> bent wood glows in Scandinavian.
2: That would be hilarious if it did. No, this this was a totally made up word uh, just for the sake of knowing that I would be able to get a federal registration on the trademark. Very and of you. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's
1: great. It. Ben, what's next for you? I know you're working on that very large commission, but are there any other designs that you're working on that you'd like to tell us
2: about? Yeah, so I kind of touched on it briefly before, but I... I invested in essentially this this large machine. Um, It's called a CNC machine. And I've been teaching myself computer-aided design. And this is going to be a whole new approach. Um, I've designed some stuff with this at this point. Again, this uses a different technique than the bent laminate. Bent laminate's not going to go away, but I've just a couple honest conversations with myself about how much work the bent laminate takes. I would like to still do it but not necessarily have it be the backbone of the business because it's just it's it's incredibly labor intensive and it takes it takes a long time. So if I can supplement if I can add to the business, you know, using essentially things are still going to be hand finished hand a lot of hand based, you know, construction is still going to be implemented, but using this machine is going to allow me to, it's also going to allow me to create things that I I basically could not do by hand, um, even with unlimited time. But I'm really excited to dive into this and see where this goes, because it's going to accomplish a lot. It'll consensually expand the product offering. I can flesh out ideas that I've been sitting on for years, actually, that I just, I haven't been able to figure out how to do it unless using a machine like this. That sounds great. Expanding
1: the product offering is right. uh, really the goal it, because once everybody sees what you're capable of and what these fixtures look like, they're going to want one.
0: Is this the buzzword like scalability?
2: Is this... That's honestly a big part of it. As of right now, I, again, I, I feel so fortunate to be able to grow the business as, as far as I've grown it but I, I see the ceiling where I'll be able to take this under the, the current the current operation so I just I need to adapt and kind of evolve to the next step this is how I see to do it yeah I'm, I'm super excited for it. it's just I wish there were more hours in the day because it's just as as we all as we all know it's just like it's so hard to sometimes I feel like I'm getting blood from a stone you know but it's finding time to work on this you know hopefully get a little bit of a breather once the, this next round of orders goes out the door
0: yeah, working smarter and not harder and maybe being able to totally. sleep a little bit. It, it's totally. all for the better good of the business anyway. Yep. We we talk about the importance of, of social media and what it has meant to your business. If people do want to learn more about your work, about Ovid, about your designs, where can people find you online, on social media, if they want to reach out to you?
2: Yeah, um, I have my website, OVUD.com. The same thing for all of all the social media handles. I'm, I'm on Instagram and also on TikTok. It's all the same. I, I post essentially Instagram has both photos and video content. Uh, TikTok, I just share the same video content. That's another thing. I'm I've been so busy with actual production. That's been hard for me to kind of just share more narrative about the business and the studio and the approach. And I'm, I'm hoping that frees up more time. But as of now, I mean, honestly, I share as probably everything through Instagram. Uh, and then I ultimately get everything up onto the website.
0: And we'll have all those links in our post when this goes up. And obviously Beth and, and Pod Clubhouse will share it on our social media channels also.
2: We will. So. Ben, thank That's you great. so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for having me. This is great.
0: Yeah, Ben, thank you for joining us, listeners. Head over to com. head over to Ovid's Instagram feed. Uh, there's some amazing looks at, at Ben's work and every everything he's doing. Even if you're not in the market, I think it's worth the time to just go search and see what's out there, the creativity that, that's that gone into these fixtures. It's pretty amazing. You'll
1: definitely be inspired.
0: Yeah, for sure. Ben, thank you again. Uh, we went way over time that I uh, that I had said it would probably take. <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, being patient and
2: uh, hanging with us today. No, I, I really enjoyed this. No it was problem. great. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks.
0: Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is a original Pod Clubhouse production, recorded, edited and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to Decorating the Set at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.